Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, as you can see, we have sent some of our best to Vietnam. We also just yesterday sent others of our best to Ocean City. Uh, I am very, very thankful to be part of a church that has that kind of outward focus. And so just a little something and, and many, many thanks to those who helped put us, helped us uh, put that together. Uh, just so that you can see and celebrate along with the rest of us what God is doing all over the world uh, as a result of, of what our church is doing. It, it's just an incredible thing. Now, because of that, um, we, when we send our best, sometimes we end up short-staffed. And so if you were, for example, in line today um, to drop your kid off at Covenant Kids and you thought, man, this is just a little bit too much like a Disney ride um, my apologies for that. Um, not, not that anybody did anything wrong, but when you're short-staffed, sometimes that happens. So two things. Number one, thank our staff who are here, who are doing everything they can uh, to try to keep up. And, and secondly, be thankful that when we send, we do send our best. Um, and so I, I'm, just, I'm just incredibly grateful uh, for all of that. I have been asked to make a couple of announcements. This first one it, I, I did a couple of weeks ago, but I know some of you are on vacation. I just want to make sure that I, I cover this. Uh, we are covenant, and we live in West Virginia, and time is kind of fluid for us. I understand that, and, and so sometimes 10, 15, some of y'all just, just walked in here right now. You just you know, I, I don't know what causes that exactly. I'm not judging. Uh, but it's something that we've noticed. Now, something else that we've noticed, though, that is of particular concern is some people, when they come in late, hit the parking lot with roughly the same speed and velocity that they had when they were on Shepherdstown Pike. Uh, some of you, furthermore, when you leave, and maybe you've got somewhere to go, I'm sure you do, um, and you, you're just in the car and you're gone Please remember, our security team has asked me to remind you of this, there are small children in our church family. They have a mind of their own, sometimes in spite of a parent's best attempt to maintain control, they will get loose and they will run. And if you are going 30 miles an hour, you will not be able to stop. Please slow down. Y'all hearing my heart in this? Okay, coming in leaving. Let's do that. Let's care for each other. Uh, the other thing is, as you know, I've got about three weeks left with you guys, and then I'm gone for a couple of months. And what, here's what I'm doing. You, you're going to see me because when we're not overseas and it's a Sunday, we're going to be here because this isn't just where I work. This is my church family. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you over that time period. But as most of you know, and, and you'll get a video on this coming this coming week, so watch your inbox. You'll see it on social media. We're not showing it in the service because it's about five, six minutes long, and, but it gives you every, pretty much any question you would want answered. It would answer that for you about what I'm going to be doing, what you guys are going to be doing. But I'm, I'm primarily focused on studying the life and ministry of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so if you are a nerd like me, now you don't have to care that much about it. That's totally fine. But we have some resources for you. So if you want to journey along with me while I'm gone, and they're right through those doors to the right, there's a book table there. Not really everything the man ever said outside, out loud in his life, but a lot of what he said, a lot of what he wrote, as much of the significant pieces of that as I could assemble for you so that you can know what I'm reading, what I'm becoming familiar with. And, and then when we come back, we'll do kind of a special banquet one evening, and, and I'll just share a little bit with you about what I've learned and how I think that pertains to the next season of our ministry together here at Covenant. And so as much as you want to be along for that ride, we want to give you opportunities to do that. So feel free to jump outside, grab a book, and uh, I look forward to that journey with you. Uh, for the remaining weeks, we're in a series called Ask Anything Summer. So we asked you several months ago, throw anything at us that you want. Nothing is off the table. I'll take the five most frequently asked about subjects, and I'll do my best to try to address them. It gives me, as a pastor, more insight into what's going on in your heart and mind and soul. What are you thinking about? What questions do you have? Uh, but hopefully, it will also help you as well. Next week, our youth will be back. 
I think roughly half of them are in Ocean City right now, ministering and, and serving there. Uh, and so I'm going to dedicate next Sunday to answering their questions. And I think there were five or six of sort of the top five. I'm going to try to answer each of those in turn from this stage. And then my final Sunday is a unity service. One service under one roof. Bring your kids because your kids are going to be up here with me. And I'm going to answer their questions. And some of those questions are going to be hot mic questions. I'm a little intimidated, so I'm serious. Like, you answering a high-level theological question from a 35-year-old is nothing compared to trying to answer the question of a 5-year-old. Um, but we're going to have some fun together as a church family, so you, you don't want to miss that. Today, we're going to look at the issue of separation, the, the fact that, that the Bible calls us at one and the same time to live wholly separated lives that are distinct from the kind of life that is typically lived out in the world. Simultaneously, that same Bible tells us to engage the world, to love the world, even in some sense to become, not like the world in a sinful sense, but, but to become to those under the law. I become as one under the law, Paul said in, in, Romans, I mean in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And so how do we balance that out? I'm going to answer that question because of the multiplicity of other kinds of questions that relate to that that came into me over the last few months. So here's just a, just a few of them. Is playing games like Dungeons and Dragons okay for a Christian? Is that all right? Uh, well, that, that is the short answer. Yes, it's totally fine. But we, we're going to get to that here in just a second. Um, and, and for some of that, it might be some of our younger people, but a lot of people my age, we grew up in the 1980s and we heard how demonic this was. And we even heard how, for some of you who work for Procter & Gamble, we even heard how evil that company was, you know, and he come to, come to find out and pull the cover off of it. Whole thing was just a big ruse. Uh, but, but it's a legitimate question. Like, okay, well, there's some, it, it appear to be like some witchcraft and some things like that. Can we, we watch movies or participate in things like Harry Potter or Star Wars for, for like particularly the same reason. Some of y'all are maybe against Harry Potter, but you didn't think about Star Wars. Yeah, that Jedi stuff, like that's, yeah, that, that's Hinduism, witchcraft, animism. It's all kind of rolled up into one big ball. Is it okay to be entertained by those kinds of things? Uh, here was a good one. I just turned 21. Is it okay to drink? A reasonable question. Um, should movie ratings matter to a Christian? All right, and that's generalized from several other things. Is, is, it, is it really appropriate for somebody to see something that's rated R? All right, is that okay? Like, or, or is it not okay? And some of the questions I got, I kind of knew the opinion. Like some of y'all, you already got your mind made up, and you're just you're posing it as a question. And I'm I'm gonna get to the end of this, and if you disagree with me or I disagree with you, you're gonna well, I just did. Well, then why did you answer the question in the first place? I mean, if you already got your mind made up, that's fine. You can believe that, but good grief. Don't be annoying. (laughs) Should movie ratings matter, right? Here's the big, how do I balance Paul's statement of I am all things to all people with this other statement that he says in Romans 14, do not give your brother cause to stumble. Another way of asking the question, how do I remain set apart, separated, holy? Those are very clear commands in Scripture, and they are not negotiable. And whatever they mean, they must be obeyed while simultaneously engaging the world. Now, here's what you need to know that hopefully won't make you unsettled. It will make you a little more comfortable. It'll help you feel a little bit better about yourself. We are not the first generation that's ever dealt with this. We're not the first age that's ever dealt with this. Every culture presents a challenge for every new generation of Christians around this question. And I think that's by God's divine intention. I really do. I think it forces us into a conversation with each other. And I think that's a a healthy thing to always ask with every acceptable, successive generation, what is acceptable, what is scriptural. But answering those questions is sometimes, now sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's pretty clear cut, right? Well, pastor, you know, sometimes porn can be ethically sourced. What were you, what are you smoking? right? Like, like sometimes it's just, it's just evil, right? But more often than not, there are things that are far more complicated than we might wish it were. And, and I'll be honest, I get as frustrated as some of you do about that. I am a type A personality, extroverted, take charge leader, and I like to operate on facts. And I'm a preacher and nothing torments a guy like me more than ambiguity. Right? Lack of clarity. But here's the thing I've learned about lack of clarity and blurred lines as a believer of many decades now. Nothing has helped me grow in my relationship with Jesus like blurred lines. 
if for no other reason than it's one of my biggest challenges. Like, I want it to be clear. And often God says, well, you don't get clarity today. You get me. And I'm asking you to trust me. Blurred lines are often the thing that makes us better followers of Jesus. And, and here's the reason. Because on the one hand, just because they're blurred doesn't mean they're not there. Okay? And so our search for that is part of the discipleship process. But because they are blurred, you also just can't make a big list. All right, we'll make this long list of rules that, that will present, prevent us from crossing any line ever. You know what you call those people? Paralyzed. Paralyzed. I learned this when I started working with the Muslim world and working with people in other religions, and I had people in my own denomination like, are you compromising? Are you doing it? What are you doing? Well, listen, I did, I did have concern about that, but it took me about two years of working with people, and brothers and sisters, I came to this conclusion. Between the guy who occasionally, in his well-meaning effort to try to share the love of Jesus with the world, might cross a line and will repent from crossing that line, and this guy over here who never does squat because he's afraid of crossing a line, you give me that first guy, and I'll run with him every single time. Jesus did not give us a safe faith. He gave us a faith that would push us to the ragged edge of the mission. But, but, that doesn't mean that lines, even if they're blurred, can be ignored. You starting to see how this is a struggle, right? But this is how you grow, right? You don't, you, you don't, get big muscles, guys, by lifting five-pound dumbbells. No, you got to lift something that you can, you can, as you pull up, you can feel the muscles tear. All right? Struggle causes growth, and something else happens in this too. If we do it right, we love each other through that process. So we have to be faithful to God through that struggle. And this, interestingly enough, was Jesus' prayer for us. In John 17, 15, this is what he says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. All right. I don't want them. We, we want to get away. We want to create our own cultures. We want to create our own camps. We want to start our own schools. And there's, listen, there's nothing inherently wrong with that unless what you're trying to do is create a bubble so that you never have to encounter anything that makes you uncomfortable. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What I am asking is that while they're in the world, they be kept from the evil one. And for the past two millennia, followers of Jesus have struggled to embody what that means. The great reformer Martin Luther actually said, if you look at history, it's kind of like watching a drunk man trying to mount a horse. He jumps up from the left side and falls off on the right side. And then immediately jumps up and jumps back on, tries to jump back on from the right side. And then he falls back over on the left side. We're always trying to mount the horse. And I think the same can be safely said of the Christian life. We even see this throughout the history of God's people. Let's go back, for example, to the, the period of the Babylonian captivity. God's people, Israel, had the temple. They had the sacrifices. They had all that, and God took every bit of that away from them. When he sent them into Babylon as slaves, the temple was destroyed. And you know what they discovered by the banks of the Euphrates River? You know what? God is still here. We don't need the temple in order to have our God. We don't need, but what we do need is for God to reveal himself to us. And so one of the beautiful things that emerged out of the Babylonian captivity was this thing called the synagogue, the gathering of God's people with Torah, the law of God now, not, the, not the, the, the accoutrements of worship or the temple or all these religious things, but the law of God itself now becomes the center of worship through this informal gathering. Now, what then happens? Because we're human. Over time, scholars that would become known to you and me as the Pharisees with a right and fierce zeal for the truth of God would add commentary to the Torah and high structure to the synagogue. And so by the time we get to Jesus, that religious system, once again, was complicated. It was burdensome. And from Jesus, we know, because he called this out, the biggest issue with it, it was heartless. And so Jesus, mostly through the Sermon on the Mount, 
reestablishes the law of Moses and a rightful understanding of that law as fulfilled in him. Then after his resurrection, he and his disciples, they take the gospel message all over the world and they encounter multiple languages and cultures and backgrounds. And in some of those cultures, like the native Jewish culture out of which it came, the tendency was toward, okay, well, you still have to be circumcised and you still can't eat pork and you still have to do this and have to do that. And so they had to contend with that. In, in other more pagan backgrounds, like for example, Corinth, that they, went, they came into an environment, planted a church, and, and about 18 months in, Paul's starting to see that, wait, 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 wait. These people are coming in, and, and every time we have communion, all they see is an open bar. They don't know what this means, but they're getting drunk off of it. You've got sexual immorality that would make Jerry Springer blush. You've got a guy sitting front row center with his arm around his stepmother that he slept with the night before. You've got people walking into the church with the temple prostitutes that they slept with the night before in the pagan temples. And so correction had to be made there as well. And so throughout that history, all the way up until now, we have struggled to walk with Jesus in a way that, that is avoiding two pretty serious errors, legalism on the one hand and libertinism on the other. So, so let me frame what we're going to talk about today by just defining those succinctly. Legalism is something that looks like holiness but at the end of the day, what it is, is it's an attitude that says God's word and God's revelation and God's spirit are not enough. We have to add to it. Read the end of Revelation about what happens to people who add to God's word. Libertinism, by contrast, is a movement that looks like compassion and love, but underneath the surface is a disposition of God's revelation and God's spirit and, and God's will reveal a little too much. It goes too far. It's okay to ignore certain parts of it. And navigating between those two requires understanding. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a framework for trying to understand this conversation. And, and I'm going I'm to share a little bit with you about how we deal with this at Covenant, uh, kind of the levels of understanding that we brought to this at Covenant. And then we'll be out of here, okay? But, but first, I want to start with kind of the, the understanding of the relationship of the believer to the wider culture, okay? You, you can't escape culture. I remember sitting in, in, at Southern Seminary in the late 1990s and, and hearing a very famous preacher. If I called his name, you would know him. He was in the room and he was preaching and red-faced and pounding on the pulpit. And he said, we are not going to let a hell-bound culture determine what we do in the church. Red meat, right? Amen all over the building. And I'm sitting there going, okay, well, we just sang hymns to the tune of an organ that kind of came into vogue in the 16th century. We, the hymn we sang was actually a 17th century hymn. We're sitting on pews that became popular in the 18th century. We have a form of worship that became popular in the 19th century. He's wearing a business suit that came into vogue in the 20th century while wearing a microphone and broadcasting over the medium of the local television station. Culture's already determining how you do this. All right? That's just stupid. All right? It's stupid, it's shallow, it's not. we got to think better about what this looks like. We really do. And so how do, you, how do you do this? Well, the best resource that I can find, I have yet to find its equal, 72 years after it was first written in 1951. And it's a book, and if you, if you don't want to know any more about it, you don't have to buy the book, all right? But I'm Because I'm going to summarize it for you today. Uh, but it was a book written by Richard Niebuhr in 1951 simply called Christ and Culture. And Niebuhr was trying to make sense of how Christians have struggled with this. And what he provides us there are five models. So let, let me unpack those for you and show you some scripture from God's word that relates to some of this. But beginning with model number one, which is very simply Christ against culture. The two very prominent historical models of this, a third century African bishop named Tertullian and a 19th century Russian thinker and novelist, Leo Tolstoy. And what they shared in common, along with others who advocate this position, is when it comes to Christ and culture, there's always a very clear line, and that line is at culture, and the reason is because culture is inherently evil. Doesn't mean it can't sometimes produce good things, but it's inherently evil. In fact, Tertullian went so far as to claim that original sin wasn't merely passed down from soul to soul, but from culture to culture through the influence of society and, and culture at large. And, and what these folks are trying to reckon with are passages we read in Scripture like 2 Peter chapter 2. 
Verse 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we see something even more dire in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That sounds pretty stark, doesn't it? That sounds pretty clear. And, and there are plenty of other places that we can go to in Scripture as well that, that kind of give us that same sentiment. But, but here's, the, here's the issue with that. When you conclude based merely on that, okay, well, that means the world is culture and culture is evil. All right, well, now what do we do with that whole boatload of texts that clearly declare to us that God himself loves the world? What do we do with that? Anybody ever hear John 3.16? pretty basic Christianity. And so this separation, which we believe, is not easily defined like the Christ against culture advocates would have it to be. For one thing, it's, it's not possible to separate yourself from culture. It, it's just not. And when you try, the best you're going to come up with is a very toxic form of Christianity that sees anything outside your bubble as an enemy or something to be avoided or something to be angry at or something to be fr afraid of. And the anger of man, Scripture tells us, does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And God, Scripture tells us, has not given us a spirit of fear. So this is not a place that, that we should go. And, and it's funny because I've, I've seen people get really like, it, it's it, it, fundamentalism, not, and I don't mean that in the historic sense of believing the Bible. and all, I mean large F fundamentalism. Basically, they're always angry. They talk about Jesus, but Jesus himself seems like a pretty old curmudgeon you know, every, time they, every time they talk about him. And, and it's just, they, they get really angry, and you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that. And, and it takes all kinds of different forms. Yeah, somebody, I can't believe you guys celebrate Christmas. Well, well, yeah. You know, it's a pagan holiday. It has pagan roots. I am well aware. I am well aware Jesus was not born on December 25th. I get that. I am well aware of how that intersected in history with, with some of those pagan feasts in Rome. I'm, I'm aware of that. Yes, absolutely. Modern Christmas and its exp modern expression has pagan roots. You know what else does? The Greek language into which our New Testament was written. All right? The root of a thing, we call it in philosophy, we call this the genetic fallacy. That just because of where it came from might be corrupt. That means the thing itself is corrupt. It's a very, very immature way of thinking. I can't believe you do that. Halloween. Oh, that's controversial, right? We got in trouble with a family. We, we, we had a family that, that, that left us, love them, but it was just one of those I can't believe. We, we started this thing not long after I got here where we were collecting candy bars, full-size candy bars. How many of y'all remember the house, if you were a trick-or-treater, that had the full-size candy bars? Like, I, it is etched into my head as an eight-year-old, seven, six-year-old kid. I remember that house. You kids don't miss that house. How many of y'all remember the house that gave away dum-dums and you thought about egging it afterwards, right? You should not egg a house. That's wrong. It's funny, but it's wrong, right? Don't do that. Um, and, and so, it, yeah, everybody, and I said, all right, we're going to give away the good stuff. And so we, we do that on, on German Street, and we, it was interesting. It was a small number of people, but it was just, I, mean, I can't believe we're, we're participating in pagan activity. How are we doing that? Well, that's paganism down there. Well, there's, there's paganism down there every day. Those are also people Jesus died to save. Are you afraid of them? Why do you say we're participating in by giving away Reese's cups? I think it takes a little more than that to worship the devil. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Plus, there's there's all kinds of material that they know who we are, they know we give a man, this is awesome. I stopped by the, the opera house in Shepherdstown several years ago because we had some leftover candy. We brought some over from Sharpsburg that hadn't been used and all that, but there was this big thing, and they were having some big thing, Rocky Horror Picture Show, not something I would recommend, but I just walked in there, and I said, hey, we've got some leftover candy. They went berserk. It's a connection. It's got pagan roots. So I knew at that point that we'd lost them. As I'm leaving... 
it's around Easter time. And I walked down their driveway, and their driveway was covered in chalk drawings of Easter eggs. Now, in case you're unaware, the Sumerians had a myth about a goddess named Ishtar who would come in the form of a rabbit every year and lay an egg to start spring. And that's where Easter eggs come from. So apparently some things with pagan roots, these people don't have any problem with. Here's my point. Christ against culture, if that's your exclusive approach to this, you're going to be very, very inconsistent. You're going to be very, very selective. And you're going to be very, very annoying to your pastor and, and, and to each other. Right? Because at the end of the day, culture itself is not inherently evil. Yelling at culture is like yelling at somebody's house. It's just where they live. Well, there's bad things. I'm sure there are bad things in it. There's probably bad stuff in your house too. But you don't want somebody outside on your front step screaming at you. It's not inherently evil. Okay? Christ against culture. Model number two, Christ of culture. And this one kind of contrasts a bit with the Christ against culture. Peter Abelard, 11th century bishop, French philosopher and scholastic, Albert Reichel, a 19th century liberal theologian, they, said, they actually said the exact opposite. Culture is the avenue by which Christians can usher in the kingdom of God. And so what needs to happen is Jesus himself needs to become enculturated, and the Christian church now becomes a place where the teachings of Jesus and the values of culture are harmonized with each other. All right, And the touchstone of this came in 1966 with a, an Episcopal priest named Joseph Fletcher who wrote a book that some of you who are older probably heard it. It's called Situation Ethics. And using this model, he even went so far as to suggest that the biblical prohibitions against falsehood and murder and adultery might even need to be set aside depending on the situation. Are you starting to see what Luther was getting at? Christ against culture? Christ of culture? The drunk man gets up, he falls down, he gets up again, he falls down. We're struggling to try to figure out how do we make sense of this? We really are the drunk man trying to mount the horse. And of course, the issue with this model is that Christ and culture are seen as morally and ethically equal. They are not. That leads to all manner of damnable ends. And you want to eat lunch, so I'm not getting into all of those. I'm just saying this is not a workable solution. Nor is, although it sounds good on the surface, model number three, Christ above culture. In the second century, there was a pastor named Justin Martyr. In the 13th century, the great Catholic philosopher Thomas Aquinas uh, actually contended that Jesus himself is the inventor of culture. Well, I actually agree with him on that. I think that's a, a good thing to remember because the answer then is to allow the values of Christ to set the cultural agenda. Well, on the surface, that sounds pretty reasonable. The good thing about it is that it recognizes nothing is quote-unquote secular. Nothing. Colossians 1.16, for by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him. There is no such thing as an inherently secular thing. That is a false dualism that you sometimes find in the church that, that really is just the leftovers of some ancient heresies that kind of come back. Everything that exists was created by God. So Aquinas is absolutely correct when he makes that contention. But what this fails to recognize is that some things in a fallen world are simply beyond redemption. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 tells us that, that Satan is one of those things. Satan is not secular. He was created an inherently sacred being, meaning he has an, he has an indelible, uh, inalienable connection to his creator, but he also has no provision that's been made for him like you and I do in the cross and the resurrection. God made no provision to redeem him. Satan is sacred, but simultaneously irredeemable. And that means there, there are other things in our culture sometimes, and we have to be careful about this, okay? There's nothing about a Ouija board that can be redeemed. It's demonic. Get that thing out of your house. Um, some forms of entertainment 
have no God-glorifying, redeeming qualities and just should simply be avoided. So I think Christ above culture makes a good, it gives us a good reminder that, that everything is created by God. We, we just can't forget not everything is redeemable in a fallen world. And then there's number four, Christ and culture in paradox. And this was actually the view of Luther himself. It's the view that probably most of us have been raised with just simply because we live in the United States and that the cultural values that surround us uh, kind of lend themselves to this. Luther claimed that devotion to Christ on the one hand and obedience to the cultural institutions of his day were separate loyalties or he would use the phrase two kingdoms. And in a sense, that also is, is correct. Um, Jesus said in Mark 12, 17, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So we see indications of this even in the Gospels, and we see indications of it all over the world today in any one of the 35 Western industrialized democracies that you may see. Uh, and, and here in the U.S., typically the way that is expressed is this idea of separation of church and state which some people in the Christian right have made a boogeyman, but I'm telling you, we believe that. We believe that. You, you don't, <laughs> wait a minute, what do you mean? This is a critic. You don't want, you don't want government meddling in theology. Bad idea. Okay? Bad idea. It's, it, what blows my mind is supposedly small government conservatives saying that's what they want. Some of you ask questions about Christian nationalism. I'm not going to have time to get to that from this platform, but there is a special edition podcast coming out, so watch your inbox. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Here's the issue with Christian nationalism. It's not that we, we don't want to promote a holy nation. Of course we do. It's not that we don't want to seek human flourishing and that we believe that following God's commands will leave there. Of course we do. The problem with Christian nationalism is it wants to codify and make everything a legal and a political battle, and eventually you're going to get to this point. Whose Christianity are we nationalizing exactly it always ends in government persecution of religious people not just non-christians this church comes out of a baptist tradition trace baptist back 300 years tell me if i'm not right when i say those were the people at the top of every persecution list of every government that ever established a state religion Government has zero business meddling in matters of theology. Zero. Y'all are thinking right now, aren't you? Yeah. You know what's, what's amazing? Everything I just said 10 years ago was not even remotely controversial. So you have to ask yourself what happened to our culture, don't you? You really do. This is another idea as well where, where it's easy to get selective depending on your ideology. Uh, so when I talk to progressives, for example, and, and if, you are, if you lean progressive, you're probably sitting there going, that's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah. And, and then something's going something's gonna to come out of your mouth in a minute that's going to betray maybe some, I love you, but maybe some shallow thinking. That's right, we can't, we can't legislate morality. I don't know, we have laws against murder. I think we can. I think we can. And I think you think we can. Because every time I talk to a progressive about universal health care, I get a moral argument for it. Yeah. I didn't, oh my gosh, now he's going to go. No, I'm not. You, you believe what you want to about that. In fact, I think, I think it is perfectly fine for a Christian to want everybody to have access to a doctor. I think it's perfectly fine for a Christian to think critically about a model that they think, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do that. I don't think that approach is going to get us there. There's room for debate on this, people. It's totally fine. But what happens when you start invoking God language into this, and, and then you go, well, well, that's what Jesus would have wanted. Whoa, 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 wait, just, just a second. 17 minutes ago when I was talking about abortion, you were wagging your finger in my face telling me not to legislate morality. What are you doing right now? See, when you, when you accept on its, on its face alone Christ and culture and paradise, two kingdoms, yeah, but here's the issue. You can't have absolute separation if for no other reason than the church and the state occupy the same real estate. So we do have to relate to each other. 
in some way. There has to be a mutual respect of each other. I mean, if a child is being abused inside some cult, uh, a building where some cult worships, I would hope you would not talk about religious freedom. I would hope you would applaud SWAT kicking down the door. And I would hope you wouldn't care whether the people wearing the badges and guns in that scenario were followers of Jesus. The state has a role. The church has a role. Right? These are deeper conversations than we're going to have time to get into exhaustively today, but it's just, it, it requires some deeper thinking. Y'all know I love you, right? Okay? You are going to be, t- here's why I'm talking about this now. Because September of 2024 is going to be too late. Because you will be sucked back into the same crap that many of you got sucked into four years earlier. Because politicians are going to use God language to advance political agendas. And some of those agendas are fine. They might even be preferable. But you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Christ and culture in paradox doesn't give us a final answer to that issue. Nor does, even though admittedly it's my favorite, this fifth one, Christ transforming culture. Going to put my cards on the table. This is my preferred model. It was John Calvin's preferred model. And it leans heavily on Jesus' promise in, on the one hand, Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Don't you love that? I am making all things new. And then in Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. God's intent isn't just the salvation of individuals. He intends to fully restore the whole created order. And Calvin in particular, I think, expressed that very well, this this permeation of all of life by the power of the gospel and that this comes as the whole body of Christ uses their positions, their vocations to express their faith to other people. This ought to sound familiar to you. I harp on it all the time. Everybody in this room, everybody listening to me right now, whether you're in science and technology, education, healthcare, whatever fields you work in, that is a calling of no less redemptive import than my own. God has called you to be the body of Christ in that context. God's intent is to restore the created order. It's a powerful, powerful picture. Here's the one problem even with that model. Calvin lived in Europe in the 16th century. You and I live a half a millennia later on another continent. How does that work here and now? Right? You're starting to see that even that is a great model, but there's no final answer. Now, some of you are sitting there who ask some of these questions and we're now 20 minutes into this message and you're looking at me and you're going I, I just wanted to know if it was okay if I have a beer like that's <laughs> that's all I wanted to know um, <laughs> why are you why are you doing this Be, because it's okay for you to have a beer, all right? There, you sat. Now, sit, stay seated, because there's a reason I went through all this. It's important for us to see not everything has a pat, easy answer, all right? Even in your small groups, you know, there's always that one guy, that one gal, that want to immediately go to the pat answer. Why? We want resolution. We want this buttoned up. Well, if we weren't fallen, maybe we could do that, but we can't. And so God gave us each other instead of easy answers. And he told us to live our lives together. And we are commanded to live wholly separated lives. We are also commanded to infiltrate and influence the culture around us. And so we have that balance between isolation on the one hand, living in the Christian bubble, and capitulation to the other, where whatever culture wants to do is just fine with us. The goal is infiltration. And Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 9. He says in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. In other words, in all areas, you can read the rest of this this afternoon, in every single area where Paul is encountering culture, he's relating to culture in every way that his faith will allow him to do so because he wants to see people know Jesus. Whether or not they speak the same language, whether or not they think the same way, whether he wants people to know and follow Jesus. So the question is, what, what does that look like in a church? Right? 
For some of you, it's an individual decision, like whether you can drink alcohol or what you're going to do with this or with that. Let me just share with you how we do this uh, in the church. And we kind of have a triage approach. There's, there's kind of a top level, call it DEFCON 1, if you will, where we're like, okay, the gospel is on the line and, and it must be defended. And then, and then it goes down from there. So there are three levels I want to give you. Level one are issues of sin and holiness, where the lines are clear. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's pretty clear. And then that, the definition of all of that unrighteousness is given to us in a passage that I preached just two weeks ago. These are the kinds of behaviors indicative of a heart that does not belong to Jesus and a person that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some things are quite simply and universally, regardless of the time you live in, your place, your culture, the language you speak, they are off limits. It's not just a sin to do those things, it's a sin to hit the like button when you see somebody else do it. Sinful. Sin, holiness. Level two, wisdom, foolishness. All right. I, I love Proverbs 6.27 because I heard something similar growing up from my father. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Right. Some things aren't inherently bad, but in your life and your, you know, experience, if they lead to something bad or sinful, maybe that's something you, you should stay away from. Okay. So let's go back to alcohol. Is it okay if I have a beer? Kind of depends. Scripture tells us that in many places, actually, that the fruit of the vine is a blessing from God to be enjoyed. And no, he's not talking about Welch's grape juice, the fruit of the vine. There's other places, though, where it says that kind of strong drink stings like an adder, which is a word for scorpion. It can sneak up on you. So depending on your body chemistry, your hereditary notions, the propensities of your father and grandmother and whoever else, if you've got this kind of stuff, maybe, well, I have alcoholism in my family. Well, maybe you should have a Coke. Okay. And so here, it comes, we just allow freedom on that stuff for individuals, to, including our pastors and deacons. Simultaneously, though, we have drawn some lines. We don't allow alcohol on the campus. We don't allow it. Now, that cost us. You know why? Because we actually, we, we, we've got some nice, like, conference facilities here that we could lease out to like the Rotary Club and other places like that. And we could actually, we, we could probably cover everything we needed to cover in our facilities budget just by doing that. But, but those individuals, those groups, they, they want to be able to serve alcohol. Well, we don't think it's wrong for them to serve alcohol. And we don't think it's necessarily a sin if we allowed it to be served on this campus. But, but given certain facts like liability, like people in our own congregation who struggle with this, like some groups are not going to do this responsibly, like we have determined that we're not going to do it. We just don't allow it on the campus. Not because we think it would be sinful, like, like we think God, well, God can't see you in your home, but he can see you here. No, that's, that's foolishness, right? It's not it. We don't, there are just certain things that we might not think are inherently sinful, but for us to do it corporately, it's not wise, in fact, some things are just absolutely foolish. And so you want to ask, where does this lead? Recovery specialists speak of what they call middle circle activity. So think of three concentric circles. On this out, outside circle is all the stuff that you can do. And not only is it not sinful, but it's, it's wonderful. And it, and it builds your, your life and it gives you fulfillment. That center circle is the destructive, sinful stuff that's going to destroy you. And the middle circle is the stuff that isn't inherently wrong, but, but you find that every time you find yourself in that middle circle, you inevitably end up in that center circle, okay? And, and so maybe that needs to not happen for you. I had a neighbor who lived uh, next to us when we were in Maryland, and I asked him to go run a 5K once. Yes, I did run at one point in my life. I know that's hard to believe. And with my, my wife and I, he said, where's it at? I said, well, interestingly enough, we, we go around M&T Bank Stadium and Camden Yards. It's a pretty nice view, you know, through the city of Baltimore. And he said, I, yeah, I can't go to Baltimore. Turned out he had a heroin addiction that he had been, that he had beat 10 years sober. Phenomenal. And he said, I found every time I went to Baltimore, 
I got in trouble. I relapsed. So I don't go back to Baltimore. It's not a sin for him to go to Baltimore. It is profoundly foolish for him to do so. And he recognized it. You see the difference, right? And so you need to think about those things, all right? You need to think about those things. And then thirdly are, are issues that we call debatable matters. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Okay? So there's a lot of debate in Rome about holy days and food laws. This is Paul's conclusion to a much longer argument, but he's identifying two groups. The strong are the people he categorizes as people who are able to eat certain kinds of food. Even if it gotten offered to an idol, he goes, well, there's no inherent sin in doing it. If it's a steak, it's a steak, okay? And not stumbling. But then there's the weak who in this context feel strongly that, you know, I just, I just can't do it. And, and so this command is aimed at a church where both groups are worshiping together. There's an idea. Stay together and grow through it with one another. And so to the strong, he says, don't cause your weaker brother to stumble. To the weak, he says, don't judge your stronger brother. Some of you take your kids trick-or-treating and some of you are not comfortable with that and it is fine. Some of you use the MPAA ratings to decide what movie you're going to see and some of you decide, you, you think, oh, that's all right. Some of you have t- tattoos and others of you aren't comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with it. It has nothing to do with religion or theology. I just don't like needles. All right. Some of you have a glass of wine with your meal. Other of you think you can't do that. Some of you educate your children in the public schools. Others of you educate them in the private school. Some of you school them at home. These are all debatable matters in which we are called to honor and respect each other. And so when the libertines come in and point to the weaker brother, sister, and go, hey, you're just wound up too tight and you need to stop, we have to call that out. And when the legalist steps in and says, you are sinning, you are disobeying the word of God, we need to remind them what's not there all right what's not there we had a movie that was shown here years probably five six years ago and it was uh um i don't remember what it was rated it wasn't an r-rated movie but it wasn't a christian movie right and i got some guy got real upset with us and, and it ended up the ire ended up being aimed at me we should only show christian movies and i went well some christian movies are just bad nobody's gonna come see them um and this was like, oh, I know what it was. It was Pirates of the Caribbean. That's what it was. It was Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, well, I, I, this is wrong. This is not appropriate. And I said, okay, well, well tell me what, what, what's not appropriate about it. I would never take my family to see such a movie. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. I thought we were using the Bible as our guide, not you. I mean, you do what you want to do. And if you have those convictions, you know, Pastor, I love you. You come out of the home, I just don't, our family won't be there. I just, I don't think we can do that. We have some conviction. God bless you. That's wonderful. I can't believe you said that about alcohol. They're going to cause me to stumble. You mean they're going to cause you to get drunk? No, I don't touch the stuff. Oh, they, so they're just making you mad. That's not what Paul meant. You don't get to do that to your brother, to your sister, all right? Those are the debatable matters. Now, here's the big idea, and then I'm done. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In context, this is what that means. This isn't about a bunch of rules. doesn't mean there are no rules. It just means the family isn't about the rules. It's about the family. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the only way to get there is to get to the heart of the book. And that that's why this drives the way we interpret every single passage of Scripture at Covenant. Jesus' words in John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. We believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. We do not shy from that term here. You go, well, it's been used politically. I don't care how it's been used. I know what it means, and we believe it here. We believe it. Um, because we believe that God breathes perfection. And every syllable of this book originated with the breath of God. But what we do not believe is that Scripture is God. The Bible is not the fourth member of the Trinity. Three is enough. Okay? The aim of Scripture 
is not merely to give you a bunch of rules, but to get you tethered to the author, to Jesus. And then that fixes everything else, right? If I've got a rope and it's tethered to the center, then I don't have to worry about the boundaries. Because the center, all right, oh, I want to do this with my money. Nope. Oh, I'd like to do this with my sex life. Nope, I can't. You, you get the difference? The aim of Scripture is to get you tethered to Jesus. And that fixes everything else. But the tragedy is that even after a message like this, there will still be libertines. Couldn't find your Bible last, th this morning because you're still hung over from some pub crawl last night. There's still going to be legalists. You're dressed really nice. You could beat anybody in here, maybe even including me, in a Bible drill. You're first in line when the next Sherwood picture comes out. You got all Christian music on your playlist. You got strong convictions, but it's all about the rules for you. It should shock us in this day how diligently and externally Christian someone can be without actually knowing Jesus. He does not want you removed from the world. He wants you protected from the evil one. And you get there by following him. Right? We'll talk this fall about what does it mean to be a disciple? It means to hear and obey the voice of Jesus. That's what it means. And there's an awful lot of freedom in that. I want us to be able to live that together. I want you to be able to find the answers you need. And some of you will have different conclusions, different decisions. Your lives are different. That's how it should be. But together as a church family, we, we move forward and we do that loving each other. That's the call when it comes to behaviors like this. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you even for the ambiguity. Lord, that you're not trying to be coy or withhold an answer but you're trying to push us towards you and push us toward each other and so i pray father that that this message has been helpful to that end i know it's covered a lot of ground but i pray in the end that every individual in this room would be obedient and that we together as a church family would love you and love our neighbor as ourselves as we seek the unity of the body and the, as the means of of transforming the societies around us. And I thank you for a church that, that does that, that's embodying that right now in Vietnam and Ocean City that has embodied it recently in Baltimore, that will continue to embody it in places like Fox Glen and Apple Tree and even in our own communities, Lord. Use us, unite us, and bring us the clarity, not, not necessarily the clarity we seek, but the clarity that's necessary for us to continue to be one and for us to be protected from the evil one, even as we remain in this world you died to save. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.